Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And we're going to get going with the other stuff before we get into the nitty gritty. Um, for starters, things have been grooving too. Um, Star Trek Lower Decks, great second season so far. And of course, Ted Lasso, the finales this week, and Ted Lasso's already taken a different turn in this second season, and it's about to take a serious turn in this finale. So if you're not caught up, get caught up. And my pick hit for this week, and every week I'm going to do a pick hit from now on, Squid Game. If you haven't watched it, do it. Imagine if somebody started with Romper Room, added the Hunger Games, threw some Black Mirror in. That's what you get. This is some wild, that's some seriously wild stuff right there. If you haven't been watching it, get on that. You'll be glad you did. Now, I've been giving myself a little bit of downtime because starting this week, we're going to embark on a special journey in the weeks ahead. And during our guest segment, I'm going to break it down further as far as what course heading podcast is going to be going on between now and late in November. We're working on getting a lot of voices who are dealing with trans inclusion in sport and play the games and help get people ready to play the games and have stories to tell. And we're going to look to tell even more of those. But before we do that, that's coming in the guest segment. We're going to look at the news and notes from the week, and we're going to begin, unfortunately, with small people with big, wrong ideas. And as you're hearing this podcast right now, Texas is at it again. Yet another attempt by the Greg Abbott regime in that state to target trans youth again. This time the measure is called House Bill 25. It's for the same purposes, Senate Bill 2, or whatever name it's going by this very minute, to keep trans youth in school or out of school sports. But I have a feeling that the legislators who support this thing are about to get a rude awakening because among those going down to testify against this is the ACLU's top legal eagle on this, Chase Strangio. And Mr. Strangio has pretty much been the bane of many of these actions. As I say often, um, to those who seek exclusion, look out. You're about to be chastised. But I got a question for all these legislators, not just in Texas, but across the country. When is it enough for you? When? Especially in Texas. Um, when is it enough? I mean, it's bad enough that reproductive rights have been thrown in the bin. Uh, voting rights, also thrown in the bin. And I saw that gerrymandering map. <laughs> Not only do you want to, you really want to put the screws to people's voting rights, especially black and brown people in that state. When is it enough? At best, Texas has become Victor Orban's hungry. At worst, it's become Gilead. When is it enough? I'm sure that the legislators behind House Bill 25 or whatever they're calling the latest attack on trans youth in that state 
I'm pretty sure that group of legislators probably watched the new Dave Chappelle special and took some material from it. Who knows? I'm pretty sure that none of them read my article in Outsports back on September 24th. Hashtag just saying. Now, in Outsports, there's an article on the locker room experience in the men's big five sports by the numbers based on a survey that Outsports is a part of, and it paints a rather hopeful picture. When you get a chance, check that article out. And as we go, as we get this thing together on Wednesday, Wednesday night, WNBA playoffs reach the semifinals, and by the end of the night, we could have a finals matchup because the Chicago Sky could clinch their series against the Connecticut Sun with a win. The Phoenix Mercury could clinch their series against the Las Vegas Aces with a win. Now, how has the Chicago Sky gotten here against the hottest team in the league since the Olympic break? Well, they found ways to win. And in Game 3, they did it again. An 86-83 win, powered by Kalia Cooper with 26 points, and some clutch shooting by Ali Quigley. Four for seven from three-point range for 21 points. And the assist, again, came from Courtney Vandersloot. Had 13 for the game. Now, Vandersloot's done the job as the Sky's point guard in this series. Remember what she did in game one? She had the league's second-ever playoff triple-double. 12 points, 10 rebounds, and 18. That's right, 18 assists in the win. Now, in the other semifinal, Phoenix Mercury backed up Diana Taurasi's weekend explosion where she had 37 points at age 39 in Game 2 with Brianna Turner firing out for 23 points in Game 3. Brittany Griner also added 18 points in 11 Rodmans as they pasted last year's WNBA runners-up 87-60. Again, if both teams get the win Wednesday night, both teams head to the finals, which are scheduled to start this coming Sunday. Also on Wednesday, the National Women's Soccer League resumes play amid a lot of damaging allegations concerning player abuse from a story last week in The Athletic surrounding North Carolina coach Paul Riley and from an August report in The Washington Post on allegations against former Washington Spirit coach Richie Burke. Now, in response, the Spirit CEO, Steve Baldwin, stepped down on Tuesday following in the, on the heels of the NWSL commissioner, Lisa Baird, who stepped down on October 1st. But players and fans are demanding even greater accountability, especially in the wake of accusations against Riley that include sexual abuse of players. Now, one of the players who spoke out was Mona Shem. She made an appearance on NBC's Today Show along with former teammates Sinead Forelli and U.S. National Team Captain Alex Morgan. He's a predator. He sexually harassed me. He sexually coercioned, And he took away our careers. I just was very, very uncomfortable the whole time. And every day I showed up to work, every day I practiced, every game I played, I didn't have confidence. And I was scared. I was scared. And the only thing that got me through was my teammates. And I'm still damaged. You know, this isn't something that just goes away overnight because we talk about it. It's extremely vulnerable and detailed what we've gotten into this week. I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to get these bad people out of the league and 
really shine a light on on this issue because it's so prevalent. It's not just this team. It's not just this coach. It's across the league. It's across the sport, and we have to do something about it. Morgan went on to call out the league for ignoring Shim's initial complaints against Riley back in 2015 and said the current situation represents, quote, systemic failure. Now, that systemic failure could harm a league that has a great deal of potential. The NWSL has generated a great deal of interest from star athletes buying into teams to big-heeled investors with some big checkbooks also buying in. This entire scandal is an ugly black eye, but black eyes can heal. The best way to heal to the owners and to any prospective leadership team, listen to the players, work with the players, use the players to build a new paradigm for a league, get a leadership team in there that's ready to lead, and get these issues fixed. Hearing stories like Shims and reading about Washington Spirit players virtually mutinying against their coach, saying that their coach made them hate the sport, speaks volumes. And that volume doesn't sound good at all. To quote veteran Becky Sauerbrunn, NWSL, it's time to get your stuff together. To be where we are today is unacceptable. The league and every club have to do better. A couple of shout-outs to a couple of firsts. Congratulations, Bubba Wallace, on your win at the Monster Cup Yellowwood 500 at Talladega. Rain shortened on Monday. First African-American driver to win a NASCAR Premier Series event since Wendell Scott won at Jacksonville in 1963. It's also the first Cup Series win for the 2311 team co-owned by basketball legend Michael Jordan and three-time Daytona 500 winner Denny Hamlet. And kudos on a nice start for 2021 Outsports Pro Athlete Triumph Award winner Tiffany Abreu. The first trans woman to play in the Brazilian Volleyball Super League signed with a new team, Asasco Sao Paulo, in the offseason. And she's gotten off to a strong start with the new club in the season opening Paulista tournament. Now, this is the professional championship of Sao Paulo State. This is a tradition in a nation that takes its volleyball seriously. And the hitter blocker took it to Pinedos in the first game of the semifinals of this tournament. She scored 20 points, including 10 kills in a three-games-to-none sweep to get this opener. Game two of the best-of-three semifinal is Friday. If they win that, they're on to the final. And a brew, it could be her second Paulista championship. She won one for her former team, Ceci Bolivaru, in 2018. And you're hearing that sound, you know what it means. Got to give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, behind the discussions of trans inclusion in sports are people who play. And one of those is a college softball player who tells a story of how their school and their team got a lot of things right. They'll join us next. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And this week's edition begins 
a special project that's going to take a lot of work, but I'm hoping it spurs on a great deal of discussion. Beginning with today's podcast and extending between now and Trans Day of Remembrance in November, we have a goal of bringing as many voices, many divergent trans voices and queer voices in sports as we can. Voices that most of you haven't heard of. Voices that haven't been heard, but need to be heard in talking about what it means to be at the intersection of sport and transness today. Too often we hear and speak on the debate. And you notice I always use the air quotes with that word, because to me, that debate is at best esoteric and at worst hysteria. I want to spend some time giving you stories of what really goes on. The stories of people who live at that intersection of sports and transness day to day and game to game. If you're a trans athlete, if you're a trans coach, if you are a queer voice that wants to see greater inclusion, if you're a fitness trainer, if you're a coach, if you're an athlete, and if these discussions and this conversation is important to you and you want to be a part of this wider discussion, please leave your information at our Twitter page, direct message us at either our Twitter page or our Facebook page. The first of those voices is about to come on our stage right now. Their name is E. Kerr. E. plays softball at, the, at Division III, University of Scranton. Before then, they were a decorated high school player in the state of Massachusetts. But recently, E. made a decision. And that decision was, as much as they love the game, they love themselves even more. And they decided to move forward with their transition, which also goes against one critical piece of the NCAA regulations. By moving forward, they had to take a step back from the game, or at least playing the game. But they're not taking a step back from the game or the wider issue in a broader sense. And that story is something we're going to bring you today. Now beaming up from the University of Scranton, E. Kerr joins us, and we're glad to have them. Energize. Hi. E., great to have you on the podcast, but even more importantly, great to have you as part of this wider discussion that I hope bears a lot of fruit and bears a lot yeah. of understanding. Before we get into the nuts and bolts, um, how, how was fall play? Because I know fall softball in full swing University of Scranton getting ready for a, a 2022 season. It has a lot of goals. Yeah, it went really well, actually, like a lot better than I expected it to go. We we have a new coach this year. Um, our other coach got a job offer in a different a different program, not softball related. So it was a lot of change, especially as a senior and for some of our returners. Um, but we did really well. We all had fun and we really got to know each other this fall. So I think it all just came together and we performed really well in our play day. This was a team that the year before the, the COVID cancellation 
got to their conference finals, got on the doorstep of the Division Three National Tournament. This is a team that's got some horsepower. What's the goal for 22? We definitely want to make it back to our conference finals. We actually won our first conference finals that year before COVID. And so we've kind of had this huge target on our back by everyone in our league. So it's really just going to be about defending and regaining that title of conference champion. You were playing for this team. Now you're a manager for it. What first, how's the switch going for you? How's it changed? How are things how are things a little bit different? Because even though you are the manager, I I saw the tweet a couple of days ago, you're lifting with the team. You're still yeah. getting you're still getting in there with them in the sense first off, in a sense, have you become kind of a manager coach? How is it how does that work exactly? So it's kind of strange because I don't really have like a defined role, I guess. I am a manager, but that role is kind of broad and ambiguous in that there's not a lot of definitions of it. Like, I don't know exactly what that means to be a manager since I'm not hurt physically. Like, usually we have managers who are injured and they're former players who just can't play for a season or two, but I am physically capable of playing. I'm not allowed to play because of the NCAA. So it's kind of like there's things that I can do that a lot of our former managers couldn't. So I will throw batting practice. I go to team lifts and I lift with my team. Um, I'm working just as hard as them on my own body for my own goals. I just can't play in games or perform in any kind of game setting, really. NCAA regulations are involved in this. What exactly is the regulation? What what does it entail, especially for those who don't understand these regulations exist? Um, So the rule that is affecting me right now is in regards to hormones. And there's a bylaw that states once a a female to male athlete starts taking testosterone, they are no longer eligible to compete in a women's sport without without that team being considered a mixed team. And so I started testosterone this past summer. And the day I took that hormone, I was ineligible per NCAA rules to compete on my team without changing our status. And there isn't any mixed team competition that I know of for Division Three softball. What led you to make that decision? How easy was it or how difficult was it to make that decision? Ultimately, what was the factor that, says, that said, I need to move forward. I need to do this. So last spring, I actually had top surgery, which was the main priority for me in regards to my medical transition. Um, And I knew that once I started recovering from that, it was kind of like, I need to keep going with this. Like I, I wanted to start hormones from the day I knew I wanted top surgery. I just was trying to figure out when, because softball was such a big part of my life. And I knew about that, that rule. And so I kind of just figured it's now or it's never like, I'm either going to do this now, or I'm just going to keep pushing it off and keep putting myself through this mental pain that I couldn't handle dealing with anymore. Prior to this and just being on the team, what was, what were the dynamics like for your first, just for yourself? What was it like? Cause you had just spoken about some of the mental pain. Where did you find a place to cope, heal and or compartmentalize? Um, my teammates have always been the most supportive people in the world of my transition. My teammates, my coaches, they 
or they will do anything for any one of us. And that has been the most supportive part of transitioning and making this decision to step down as a player. In terms of like trying to compete to play, I've always been the kind of person who is a team player rather than an individual player. So I would rather see my team succeed, even if it means I never see a minute on the mound, than pitch every single inning and potentially not have our team do as well. So I've, once I like was starting to address some of the mental pain that I was going through, it was kind of an easy transition to start hormones because I knew like my team's going to do well, regardless of if I'm pitching or not. I just want to be there to support and to add to that process. What was it like first telling your team that it's time for me, it's time for me to truly be E the way I want. And that means I got to let this go. What was it like telling the team? Um, so I actually told my coach that I would identified as trans back when I was a sophomore and we had someone from our women's center on our university come in and discuss gender and sexuality with our team. And that went so well, like our coach made us cancel practice to keep continuing that conversation and just like learn all of the different identities and how it impacts daily life for people who identify as trans or as non-binary or as gay. And everyone just was so intrigued by it. So I think that was the first big step in kind of unifying us all and like starting to have them understand this is what I'm going through. And maybe even some of them were going through identity issues at the time. And that was very helpful for them as well. And so they never really not supported me like when I told them I was having top surgery they were all so kind they wrote me a card and got me like a gift basket after and then I they knew I was gonna start hormones after because I'm very open about like all of that with them and so it's just kind of been like they love having me there and they always support me and it's not really changed anything let me make sure I heard what I just heard you went up to your coach and said this is me this is who I am. This top surgery is happening. Yeah. And coach says, in a sense, okay, we've got your back. And they brought people yeah. in and canceled a practice. Yep. Did I, did I hear that right? Yeah. She was very like focused on making sure I felt comfortable with my teammates and they felt comfortable and understanding of my identity. How did that make you feel? I was very happy. I thought it was, it was awkward at the time because a lot of them did have questions and it was like, I'm very open with them, but it was just like a setting where it was so, it was a group setting. So I was a little nervous, but I just felt like I was a hundred percent comfortable with these people. And, you know, I'd always felt comfortable with them, but there was this level of like miscommunication in a sense where I know they didn't know too much about my experience. But having them have that background and that education, like I felt very supportive and almost like I had this family rallying behind me. Knowing that we were all on the same page after that meeting was very calming for me. And it just made me feel very empowered. And like I was doing something right in terms of my transition and bringing people into my family. And I don't know, it was just, it was amazing. I'm still blown away from what I just heard that. 
it was coat. It like how vital looking back on it was having not just the team support, but the wider institutional support. Yeah, it was, it's been amazing. Like I go to a very Catholic school. We're a Jesuit university, which is a little different from strict Catholicism. There's more science and reasoning and questioning of religion and like including, you know, education and science and research into that. And so I was very worried that it was going to be a little hard to identify differently from my teammates and my peers here. But it's, I found niches where I can bring in my experience and my identity and allow for some education. And I've been able to impact a lot of people, I hope, and at least make it so people feel safe and comfortable, no matter what they identify as, no matter if it's LGBTQ related or not. With that in mind, what has it been like for you away from the team, just in just in the campus and the community at large? It's it's different. It's definitely an everyday struggle in some cases. Like I'm in a small program at my school. I'm in a five year master's in occupational therapy program. And so we all there's like 50, 55 of us and we all have the same teachers every every few years. It's a very small and close knit community. And so we all know a lot about each other's lives. It's almost like a small town. Everyone knows what's going on. And so I have very understanding classmates, but some of the professors have been a little confused by everything that's been happening, especially if they've had me multiple times, like pre-transition and then now. So that I always make sure I send out pre-semester emails to them being like, hey, this is my name that I prefer to use. These are my pronouns. I understand it can be hard. If you have any questions, like feel free to ask. And most of them have been pretty good. There's been a few issues, but I'm hoping that in the next few months, I'm able to address that with some help of our Office of Equity and Diversity um, in providing safe zone training and workshops, which gives like a basic foundation of LGBTQ identity and definitions to our faculty so that they're able to hopefully trickle that down into the student body as well. In a sense, you've been doing a great deal of educating through this. Yeah. How do you feel about taking on that role? Um, it's important to me just because I know education is important in general, but being able to add personal experience to that and provide personal examples can be more impactful than just sitting down and looking at a list of definitions. And so I think not only is it something that I love doing, but I feel like I have to do to be able to make this university a place where I can be comfortable and people like even when I'm gone can feel comfortable and feel like they belong here because I love it here and I hope they do too. And I just want it to be a more community-based space. You know, you sound like the scouting report you wrote four years ago right now. There's a scouting yeah. report that you wrote. I am a hard worker in the classroom and on the softball diamond. I want the ball when the game is on the line. In a sense, is this what the game being on the line means for you now, in a sense? Taking yeah. this next step forward, but also using this as an opportunity to raise awareness. Yeah, I think... I want, if I'm going to get, if someone's going to get the game ball, I think it has to be someone who's experienced living as a trans person in this community. That's 
there's not too many of us, especially at my school. So I want to be able to make people feel comfortable and know that you can be queer here. Like it's not abnormal and it's not something to look down upon. It's an open community and we all support each other and understand things. When was that first moment or that amalgam of moments for you when you looked up and said, okay, there's something about me that's trending a little bit different? I think I've always had those moments in my life. I identified as a lesbian before I came out as trans. And so I was more aware of my identity in terms of sexuality growing up. But I think once I was able to educate myself on identity and start to recognize some of the things that were pointing to me being gender variant, like me being trans, it was kind of like, oh, this is an actual thing that I'm going to have to address at some point and explore a little more. And so that kind of happened, I think, my freshman year of college. Um, I started to bind. I started to want to cut my hair. I've always kind of dressed masculinely, but I wanted to strictly dress in men's clothing. And I know these are like very superficial things, but that's really what pointed me towards exploring my own gender. How did the sport play into that? Did, if it did? Um, the sport never really showed me in a sense that I identified as trans, that I'm not a female. It honestly worked against that because I can't really do a lot physically to make myself not feel dysphoria while playing the sport. And so once I started to really tune into my body and understand my body a little bit more, it was kind of conflicting with softball because I started to go to practice and think, I feel like I'm suffocating in this uniform. I feel like I am not in the right body even more. Okay. Now, E, I'm going to tell you something that hit me right in the chest because I feel the same way. I say that I say often that sport is a means to fight my dysphoria, but it also triggers it. Yeah. And how did you push through, especially when you were back at back in Holliston, Mass, hitting 455 and with an ERA somewhere like in the 2.5s and getting people and punching people out with six pitches? Because, yes, we did read your scouting report. Fastball change, knuckle change, curve, screw, drop, rise. You've got seven. That is seven weapons in the arsenal that you can use at your command. Mm -hmm. You were a nasty, nasty player. How did you maintain that level, but at the same time dealing with that feeling, like you just said, you're being suffocated? What was that like? to like take these two very different things and function? It was really hard. I like looking back now, if I had this awareness of my body and of my identity back in high school, I don't know if I would still be playing softball because when it started to really be brought to light in my mind, it was hard for me to pitch. It was hard for me to want to go to practice knowing I was going to be in the wrong body and having to use that body to perform so well and to compete, even though I didn't want to be in that body at all. 
And so I just don't know what, what it would have been like for me. And it was really hard um, sophomore year and last year, just trying to go to practice and, and play because my brain was so caught up in the dysphoria and it was just hard for me to focus on wanting to compete and wanting to play the sport. Do you miss softball? I miss a lot of the the competition. Like I miss having that like competitive aspect to it, but at the same time, I'm still involved with my teammates. And that honestly is the most important part to me. Um, Like I, I think it was the best decision that I could have made and it was the right time because I did have the experience of playing on this team and growing those relationships. And now I'm going to continue having those relationships now as a manager and I still get to be involved as much as I can. So it's kind of like I'm not really too far away from it. Prior to all this, even in a relatively young life, you have a lot of achievements back there. You have a lot of awards and accolades back there. Have you even looked at, for example, how you look at that time and how you see that time through the prism of right now? Um, And if so, what what do you take with you? What do you cast to the side? What do you compartmentalize if you need to? How is that process of a sense reconciling, if you feel the need to, reconciling that past to the present and to the future that you're building for yourself? I still have trouble seeing my former self and my like transition self, in a sense, as the same person. I feel so detached from the person that I was, from this person that I am now. And that's kind of bothersome to me because I did have a lot of experiences and achievements and things that have happened in my past that do impact me now, but it's hard for me to recognize them as happening to me. So trying to find this way of connecting myself in the, in the past to now is something that I'm working on through therapy, through writing, through just thinking through this process and this transition. Like how am I, how was I that person and this person at the same time? You mentioned you're a writer. Yeah. Are these things some of the things you're writing about? You've published a book. Yeah. You've written some poetry. Talk about that a little bit and also like kind of how do these experiences play out in your writing? A lot of my writing is focused on personal trauma and experiences. Um, I write what I know and what I know is what I've experienced. And so right now I'm working on a whole, another book, a whole project on gender and kind of what it means to be considered queer or a queer writer, which has been very confusing. There's a lot of different takes on it, um, theoretically and philosophically through some of the stuff I've been reading and also kind of my own definitions of it. So. I am hoping that through a lot of what I'm writing, I'm able to understand my identity on a deeper level. That's not just my physical body. Talk about the book you've written. What's the title of it? Where can I get it? Because based on what you've talked about here, I'd be interested in reading that. I'd be interested in in taking in these perspectives. Um, So it's called An Instant of Sound. And if you just type in An Instant of Sound, eCur, it'll probably pop up. It's from a website. You can get it on a website called Blurb. Um, And it's a combination of poetry and art because I am trying to work on this theory that I've had for a while that trauma is multimodal, just as 
portraying trauma in literature is multimodal. So being able to use both art and poetry to say something in a piece to me is more impactful and more meaningful than just having one versus the other. And so I talk a lot about my trauma based on gender, sexuality, um, and some of the experiences I've had over the past few years with that and how that's all kind of made me into the person I am today and impacted my life today. Yeah, writing is the probably the single most important part of my life. It's been there for me when I've been so down on myself and in a dark place. And it's been there for me through the best moments of my life. And so that's been just so important in capturing my experience and reflecting on my experiences. One thing, you've probably paid attention to some of the things you're seeing in the landscape in regards to, for example, those who say the NCAA shouldn't have a policy, that trans athlete, the, the transgender kids should not be allowed to play sport in their schools. There shouldn't be a such thing as a trans student athlete. How are you feeling and what's your thoughts on, for example, some of this legislation is coming out and the things that you're seeing and hearing in the landscape in regards to the issue? I have mixed feelings about it because I think on one hand, there needs to be rules and regulations so that people who don't identify as trans can't abuse the system. But on the other hand, you're basically saying who gets to control whose body. And that is kind of a very strange line. And it's not really too defined. I think a lot of the legislation is very baseline. I think it's all or nothing when it should be case by case. Like, I think it should be a case by case thing and looked at based on uh, individuals' identity, their performance prior to transitioning, their performance after transitioning, where they feel comfortable, what the sport entails itself. I think it just has to be a case by case thing. I think legislation is doing more harm than good. There are those who say that body autonomy shouldn't even have a measure in this. What's your thoughts on those who say, like, there's no trans body autonomy, there's no such thing? I think that's just erasing a whole group of people because I think trans people have this beautiful connection with their body. Whether it's a good relationship or not, we are able to understand our bodies in a whole other way than cisgender people. And that's so beautiful, even though it can be very heavy and destructive in our heads. It's so beautiful that we're able to see this is not the body I should be in. And I'm going to do steps to make it feel like a home. And I think try saying that trans autonomy shouldn't be a thing is erasing this whole group of people who just have this whole perspective on the body itself. And I think that's a very valuable perspective. Even as you're not playing anymore, how important is it for you to still be a part of the University of Scranton team? It's very important to me. I, I was going back and forth for a long time this summer on, can I be a manager? Am I ready to not be a player? Can I take on this role that won't involve me actively playing on the team? And ultimately, it came down to these people are my family, and I want to leave a legacy in this program, regardless of if, if I'm on the field or not. How do you see that legacy? Hopefully, it's a good one. Um, 
I want upcoming athletes in my university and beyond to see that like you can still be an athlete and be trans they're not mutually exclusive categories and just because you're not playing the sport that you grew up playing because you've decided to medically transition you can still consider yourself an athlete and be a part of that culture you get this phone call you pick up the phone and they say hello e kerr Mark Ember, NCAA. Uh, I happen to check your story out. And we're trying to figure out and make our process even better. What are three things you can tell all of our member universities right now on how they can better support their transgender student athletes that come to their schools based on your experience? The first thing I would tell them is require some sort of education or training for every faculty member involved in athletics and every university faculty member in general should have some sort of training in LGBTQ identity and should understand what a pronoun is, how to use it, how to ask people for preferred names. That's the most important thing for me is that everyone has a baseline foundation of education. I would also say make sure that teams focus as much on the physical as well as the mental health aspect of athletics. And this goes for everyone, not just trans athletes, because athletes in general, there's a lot of mental illness within that environment and it's not focused on enough. So I think making sure teams require or at least have some sort of policy regarding mental health and some sort of way to provide resources is going to be really important for everyone, especially trans athletes, because it's such a such an important part of being and going through a transition. And the last thing I would probably say is have someone who's willing to represent the LGBT, LGBTQ community within athletics who identifies within that community, because then trans athletes will feel like they have someone they can go to and feel comfortable talking to who is a part of their community. Cause I think for me, the most impactful people have been people who are a part of my community and who identify as LGBTQ. And I, it's severely lacking in athletics in general. And I think the whole culture is about suppressing your identity and just focusing on being an athlete that's very dangerous, especially for young trans athletes who are confused and are scared. For yourself, you're going through a five-year program. Yeah. And then you're going to get your degree. And I have a feeling we're not going to, we have, it's, this is not the last we're going to hear from you. I have a feeling we're going to no. be hearing a lot more of you in the years ahead on this and a lot of other things. Where do you see yourself five or 10 years down the road? So I'm in a, I'm studying occupational therapy right now, but even though I will be getting a master's in that, I am hoping to go to school and get a PhD in English or literature with a focus on creative writing. And then eventually I want to teach poetry, but also possibly work towards a counseling or a law degree to help um, trans identifying people either change their names, work on that sort of aspect of transitioning, like the legal aspect or work within the mental health field 
uh, for people who are LGBTQ or also I am a big advocate for um, victims of sexual assault and sexual violence. And so I just want to work in those fields and be able to help people using my own experiences and hopefully save people's lives. Say a few years down the road, some young person looking to maybe make their transition happen. They come up to you. They perhaps heard your story or, or read your book, read some of your poetry, and they're like, I'm trans. Is there a place for me in sport? What would you tell them? There's a hundred percent a place for you in sports. And I would tell them stay in sports, regardless of if you're playing or not, make your presence in sports a thing. Like no matter what you have to do, be in that environment and advocate for yourself and for others. That's words somebody needed to hear myself included. E. Kerr, it's been a pleasure having you today. And in fact, we want you back. Okay. We want we want we want you back. And when Scranton is at Division Three National Championships next year, we want you back to give us a preview. Eve, thank you for being a part of the transporter room. I'm gonna beam you back down to University of Scranton. You got a team to help get ready for a big season. Gonna beam you back down. And thanks to E. Kerr. It was great to have their perspective on the show this week. And also, it's great to have you joining us as well. And if if there's something you want to see on our show, something you want to say about it, please, please leave a comment on our Facebook page. Leave a comment on our Twitter page. Because everything I try to do here at the Transporter Room, I do for you first and foremost, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Live long and prosper. Steady as she goes. I'll catch you next week.